I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to another In Moscow Shadow Cellcast, a little micro-podcast going out to my patrons today, that is the 1st of November, and to everyone else one week later. And of course, if you wish you'd be able to listen to it when it was still fresh, well, you can become one of my patrons for very, very reasonable figures. Just go to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. Now, today I will confess I'm going to be subjecting you to a rant, so if you're not in the mood for that, turn away now. Recently, the tablet magazine, that's the American one, not the British Catholic one, had a very interesting piece on the New York Times and was using it generally to talk about some pathologies, shall I say, that have crept into American journalism. And I have to say, it's not just American journalism. And how it covers, in this case, it touched primarily on France and Israel, which very much to me fit some of my dissatisfactions with coverage about Russia as well. And therefore, I'm going to use this opportunity precisely to talk about five of my biggest annoyances when it comes to foreign newspaper coverage. And above all, as I said, I'm afraid it is particularly American coverage. First of all, the cliches. Now, look, we all know the old cliches from Russia with whatever bears, babushkas and balalaikas, riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, chess players, you know the sort of thing. But... There's actually also, I would suggest, a a new Russian array of clichés, particularly how oligarchs own everything, or maybe it's that the mafia run everything. Oh, no, no, it's actually that Putin is behind everything. Simplistic understandings about this is it's a mafia state or it's a kleptocracy. Look, it can be all of those things as well as a normal state. Now, okay, I understand sometimes there is always a purpose behind simplifications, when it's not absolutely crucial to the story. My concern is that when the simplifications become the story, particularly that one about Putin being behind everything. And so the the second particular bugbear of mine is the notion of the grand chess players. And this is more than just about Putin, though clearly Putin, the old, you know, he's playing three-dimensional chess while the rest of us are just playing drafts, checkers for the American audience. I address this in my book, We Need to Talk About Putin. But the point is, it's more that this is a symptom of a wider issue that looks constantly for a deep, complex, subtle conspiracy. And frankly, it shouldn't really surprise that that is the case, given that a lot of Russia is pretty opaque, or seemingly opaque, in the sense of it's not the formal structures. This is an adhocracy. Your real job is not necessarily what your job title is. The boundaries between public and private and so forth are much, much more permeable. But still, this notion that there is always an additional layer, there is always a deeper truth, is often quite a pernicious one, because much of Russia really is as simple as it looks. When, for example, Igor Sechin of Rosnev essentially framed Minister of Economic Development Ulyukayev, that was what it looked like. There was no deeper power play. It was actually one man venting his vindictiveness upon another and doing so in such a blatant way that he then didn't even bother turning up to give his evidence at the court case because he knew he had the political muscle to deal with it. There were all kinds of interesting, deep criminological analyses that suggested it was something more. Maybe it is just simply one guy didn't like another and wanted to show off his power. 
Likewise, I've just written a piece for the Moscow Times on the retirement of General Smirnov of the Federal Security Service. Now, again, on one level, of course, there is a certain amount of significance to this. Why did he go? Not so much why, because he was 70 years old, it was time, but he was dismissed in rather curt fashion. But again, I have been fascinated and delighted by some of the writings in the Russian online media and sort of general commentariat, looking for all kinds of extraordinarily complex conspiracy theories around it. The fact is, this is an old man, he had to go, and his most recent activities, possibly including being curator of the poisoning of Navalny, had not gone well, so he didn't get a big bouquet of roses and a clock on his retirement. Big deal. But that's the interesting point. This is actually something that the Russian discussions and commentaries are about. There is a fascinating mirror imaging here. In fact, both the Russians and outsiders need to remember that not everything is always that complex. There's too much over-analysis, shall we say, which might sound ridiculous from someone who makes his living as a Russia analyst, but nonetheless, there we are. Number three, Soviet Union or Tsarist Empire? Is Putin trying to reform one or the other? Should we be looking back to the Red Star or the Double-Headed Eagle? Now look, of course, there are all kinds of historical continuities in Russia as anywhere else, and particularly the effects on the political culture, especially of Putin's generation, is going to be great, because the you know, Soviet Union had a very heavy imprint on those people who grew up under it. But we have to realise that this is a new country. It cannot totally and simply be understood in terms of its similarities, differences, and possible hearkenings back to one or the other. I mean, let's be honest, no one, I think, I would hope anyway, would truly try to analyse today's Britain as Churchillian versus Thatcherite, let alone Victorian versus Edwardian. Again, it's a very, very useful instrument, to a shorthand, to try and sort of note that certain characteristics actually have their roots in Tsarist, Soviet, or whatever practice. But that's the same as any country. We also have to accept the limitations. We have to accept the fact that the new Russia is quite that. It is new. It is different. It is something that is emerging, sometimes in a faltering two steps forward, one and a half steps back way, sometimes in ways that are reminiscent of past practices, but also which is reminiscent of everything that they see, their understandings of things in the West, their understandings of things in China, their understandings of things elsewhere in the world, what they feel does and doesn't work. It's a fascinating emerging amalgam, not just simply a binary choice between which past failed model works. Fourth, sourcing. And this is always a problem because, let's be honest, any of us who particularly sort of engage with Russia and especially who engage with Russians and also engage with Western official sources means that from time to time we're going to hear stuff and know stuff that we can't actually back up with authorised public sources and so forth. The question is obviously how far do you use those? How far do you rely on them? Are these just chrome or can you actually build a whole story around it? Now of course, look, Russian spokespeople lie. Russians are prone often to using deception as an instrument, as are we all. Just because one can come up with words Disinformatia, maskirovka, that makes them sound both especially sinister and especially Russian. 
we really shouldn't get too hung up on this. Too many accounts I found in the West on Russia rely on anonymous sources, and particularly anonymous intelligence sources, without treating them as critically as they frankly deserve. Now, of course, proper news outlets also have certain standards about needing double or, or more um, confirmations. But let's be perfectly honest, there's checking and there's checking. It's often not too difficult to find people willing to corroborate um, all kinds of shady rumours, either because they've heard it, because they think it's plausible, or because in a way they want to do a solid for the journalist. Remember the Steele dossier? Particularly things like the whole issue of the, of the, the infamous PP tape, or very, very specific things like the fact that he, or the claim rather, that his lawyer Cohen had gone to Prague at a particular time. The former is, thank God, entirely unverified so far. The latter has been really very extensively and comprehensively debunked. But the point is, at the time, I remember there were people who were coming out to say, oh, yes, yes, I heard about that as well, and so forth, giving it that fake veneer. More recently, there were the allegations that the Russians were paying the Taliban in Afghanistan bounties for killing Americans. Now, nothing, nothing has emerged to back this, frankly, even at first glance, pretty dubious story. If anything, quite the opposite. The commander of American forces in Afghanistan has said that, look, they've looked into it and they have found nothing to corroborate this. And you'd think that the people who would be presumably being shot at as a result would have a particular incentive to try and find it. Why this matters is because it shapes policy. What happens is a story comes out, a story based entirely on unverified sources. And a few people say, oh, yes, that's, that's classically from, from the Putin playbook or whatever. If anyone writes playbook anywhere, always mistrust what they're about to claim. But anyway, people sort of seem to provide some kind of corroboration. And before you know it, it is being dis discussed in certain policy circles as if it were fact, as is the case now. It becomes a political fact, a political fact that fortunately can exist wholly unmoored from any reality. There is a real danger here about the extent to which policies end up being shaped by totally unfounded assumptions about what's going on. And the final element of my rant. The notion that it's all about us. And I think this is what really came up very well in that tablet article. And it's a particular sin of American reporting for, for fairly obvious reasons. I mean, America is although China is definitely snapping at his heels, the one global superpower. And at the moment, the last four years of Trump have definitely brought a whole series of not just introspection, but also often self-flagellation into Russian, into, sorry, American, and especially American liberal media outlets. But the trouble is, the assumptions are, first of all, that Russia is a simply a dark mirror of ourselves. That by looking at Russia, it tells us something about us. And there is this constant attempt to more or less say, oh, well, exactly, Trump is using Putin's methods or whatever. Well, look, again, here's the uncomfortable truth. Trump is not the first politician to lie on a sustained, almost industrial scale. He might have a particularly bizarre, almost childish approach to it. But nonetheless, this is not the sort of methodology that Putin uses. So, I mean, again, there is, there is an almost a determination, that if you're going to talk about what something the Russians are doing, to bring it back home and to say somehow it has that relevance. And the interesting thing is, again, that the Russians do this a lot. The Russians are very much involved in mirror imaging, but on a different way. 
What they do is they look at the outside world and assume that, in fact, the outside world operates by the same principles as they do. And it's one of the reasons why, basically, they do not genuinely, I think, in the main, believe that there is a, a values struggle going on. You know, some people say this is a struggle between corruption and autocracy and liberal democratic values. Well, maybe that's the case. Certainly there is a struggle like that going on. I'm not quite sure if I'd overlay that onto the West versus Russia thing. But the Russians do not see that. Why? Because they do not actually believe us when we talk about our values. They just assume that we are sanctimonious hypocrites who talk that way while in fact being pragmatic, self-interested and so forth. Why? Because that's what they do. So this is not something that is confined to Americans. And the second element of this, it's all about usness, is that Russia is really presented as something that is wholly obsessed with the United States. And that ultimately everything Russia done is somehow about hurting or befriending or outmaneuvering or copying or whatever the United States. Now, yes, of course, the United States looms very, very large in the Kremlin's geopolitical vision of the world and its imagination of the world. Arguably too large. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that therefore it drives everything. And especially it does not drive domestic politics. This is not something that they think, well, we have to do this because somehow the Americans. It's not always about Washington, I'm afraid. And this is a problem because I find this, it's not just about a journalistic thing, but I find this in my discussions often with, not all, but with a lot of American policy folk. That again, they basically regard everything outside the beltway as somehow being a, a shadow, a reflection, or based upon um, their own city. Sorry for the pause. I just had suddenly had this, this analogy that came to mind. Um, a science fiction writer, um, Roger Zelazny, wrote a series of books uh, about Amber, this, this fable city that, in a way, everything else, all the different multitudes and multiverses and dimensions, including the ones we're living in, are just simply shadows of amber. I can't help but wonder if that might be a suitable analogy for the Washingtonian perspective. And just a little sideline, by the way, there's an element of truth also about that with the European Union. When you go to Brussels, you sometimes get a sense that they have a rather exaggerated notion. Look, I'm sorry, you can talk about being a regulatory superpower all you want. That really does not give you traction in Moscow today. If I'm going to break one of my own precepts and go back to a Soviet parallel, I think just as Stalin asked how many divisions has the Pope, I think the Russians are wondering how many divisions does the European Commission have. So this is my thoroughly unedifying and no doubt intemperate rant. I really don't want to suggest that it's all journalism. There's a lot of really very, very good journalists covering the Russia beat out there, especially from Moscow. And nor do I want to suggest that it's only an exclusively an American sin. We find, I mean, obviously, that I, I can see it sometimes in, in British reporting. I've seen it in, in, in other reporting. But in all conscience, it's a lot harder, even for Brits, God bless us all, to regard ourselves as the centre of the universe. And so I think that's been much less of a problem. So what do we do with this? Beats me. I have no grand remedies. I would like there to be better journalism, and in part, I think it's being driven by editors, by being driven by the tyranny of a new model of media, which is follow the clicks, follow the views, which inevitably, I think, tends to mean 
pander to our readers' expectations, pander to our readers' prejudices, because that way we will actually get the kind of responses that we need. I don't have any answers. It's just a grey and wet Sunday morning, and I felt like unloading. And that's what I did. And if you've listened to this point, I thank you so much for giving me this indulgence. I owe you one. But for now, it's Mark Galliotti signing off. And remember, if you want to become a patron, you just go to patreon.com slash in Moscow Shadows. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> 